All right, this is from Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I mentioned earlier, we're continuing our teaching series on life after the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to talk specifically today about this thing called expectation. Uh, This story that I just read, I'm going to kind of retell it here at the beginning. Uh, The story involves two central figures, if you don't count the Holy Spirit, but how can you not count the Holy Spirit, who does really all the work? Um... But it involves uh, two sort of human characters here, the Apostle Peter and a woman named Tabitha. Uh, You notice that she was also called Dorcas, but then Peter used her other name, Tabitha, when he raised her from the dead, which I think makes sense. I would want to come back to life as Tabitha and not Dorcas, but I don't know if that was intentional or not. I didn't really research that part of the story. Um, But... What's so cool to me, well, there's several things in here that it'd be easy just to, to miss with a surface read of the story, but like what I'm going to share with you today is like stuff that you could easily find out if you're reading your scriptures or you have a, a Bible that has some notes in it or, or, uh, or something like that. This is actually pretty easy stuff to get to, but uh, one of the things that I like about what Luke, the author of the story here who wrote the book of Acts, what Luke does is... Um, he describes Tabitha as a disciple. You say, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, the way Luke describes Tabitha as a disciple is by using the feminine word for disciple. You say, well, what's so special about that? It's the only time in the New Testament this happens. The only time a woman who is a follower of Jesus is called the feminine form of a disciple to me, Luke wants us to notice right up front, this, this woman has done something right. She's, she's worth, it's worth looking at her life a little bit deeper and understanding who she, who she is. Luke, Luke writes that she was um, always going around doing good and serving the poor. And you'll see throughout this, it's a very brief narrative, but you see throughout the, the narrative itself how often Luke draws from the, the narrative of Christ himself to describe Tabitha and her life. Um, 
Tabitha is a disciple of Christ. Tabitha goes around doing good and serving the poor. Jesus went around doing good and serving the poor. It's one of the things he was primarily known for uh, in the scriptures. She sounds a lot like Jesus. And uh, she gets sick, and like Jesus, Tabitha dies. Um, the disciples in that town hear that Peter is nearby, and if you've been tracking with us throughout the teaching series, you know that these, again, these incredible things have begun to happen as the Holy Spirit is being poured out in power in and through the early church. And uh, we read a couple of weeks ago in our teaching text that uh, people were bringing their sick from home and, and lying them on mats in the street in hopes that just even Peter's shadow would cross over them as he walked by so that they might be healed. And so this is a time, um, a, a powerful time, a time, again, where the power of the Holy Spirit is, is being poured out. And so the disciples in the town hear that here, this guy, Peter, this apostle of renown, is in the, basically the next town over. And so the disciples send two men to go and get Peter, and they urge him to, to come back with them. And when Peter arrives, they take Peter right up to the upper room where Tabitha has been washed and placed. Now, when I read that this week, I was reminded that Peter was one of the two disciples who ran to where Jesus' body had been washed in place, only to find that the tomb was empty. And here's Peter, he's being brought back now into an upper room where some other things have been poured out by the Holy Spirit in the past. And, uh, of course, there's Tabitha washed and placed. And in the room, Luke tells us, where Tabitha has been washed and placed are all the widows whose lives Tabitha has, has impacted. And they're weeping, of course, their friend is dead. But not just that, but all of the widows, you can see this just powerful room of women. Many of them have been overlooked, except by the church, except by Tabitha. And they've been cared for. So this is a great loss to them. And they're weeping. And, and Luke, the author, says that they begin to show Peter the clothes that Tabitha had made. And to, to just understand one word in the original language, what you understand Luke to be saying is that they were actually wearing the clothes that they're showing him. These women had, had been affected personally by the life of this woman. They were real friends. And uh, Tabitha had this gift. Uh, uh, many, of you, uh, many of you have clothes on today, so you can appreciate <coughs> um, the fact that we have clothes to wear. Others of you are in fashion, and you have like a different appreciation or level of appreciation for, uh, for this woman and for this industry. Now here's this Tabitha, which, I, which we can gather is probably just a normal disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who has a gift, maybe even a passion, maybe a business. She worked in an industry possibly of fashion. And now she's using that gift and that passion and those skills to care for the body of Christ in a powerful and profound way. And it's those women that are at her bedside when she dies. This is a, it's a beautiful story. We know why Tabitha is here in the room. It's because she's gotten sick and died. And, and we know why the women, the widows, are there in the room. It's because they were friends with Tabitha. and She's had this profound impact on their life. But why is Peter in the room? 
The disciples don't send for Peter to show him the clothes that Tabitha made. That wasn't the reason. They didn't send for Peter to just tell stories about the life of Tabitha and how she loved the, uh, and served the poor, how she used her gifts. They, they didn't call Peter to memorialize Tabitha. They sinned for Peter because the Holy Spirit is being poured on. They sinned for Peter because they knew people who had been healed of illness. They sinned for Peter because they'd heard of people who were blind, whose eyes were now open and they could see. They sinned for Peter because there are people who were born paralyzed, who are now walking and jumping and dancing because of the power that's being poured out. They sinned for Peter because maybe the disciples believe the power is enough to even raise the dead. And this is why they send two men to get Peter. It's rare that you find this in the scriptures. Oftentimes, if you need somebody, you send a messenger. You send a person. Well, the disciples send two people to plead with Peter for Peter to come. And that's why when the two men arrive at Peter, they, they urge him, come at once. That was their thing. Come at once. Now, what is the rush? What is the rush if all they're going to do is memorialize this friend who has passed away? This is why they've washed her and they've placed her in a room but they haven't prepared her for burial yet. It's because they actually expect their friend to come back to life. That's why Peter is in the room. They expect their friend to come back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit through his servant, Peter. And I read that, and I read that this week, and I thought about my own life, and then I, my thoughts turned quickly to our congregation, and began to wonder about our sense of expectation as a church. What is our level of expectation? What do we really expect of God? What do we think Jesus might do if he were to show up in the room? I wonder about my own sense of expectation. I wonder if, if we each had an app on our phones, kind of a mental, emotional, spiritual health app. And uh, we could just pull that app out anytime we wanted to just check on sort of the condition of our hearts and our minds and our souls. And if we pulled that, our phones out and pulled up the app and found the gauge on the little dashboard of the app that measures our expectation as it relates to Jesus, my question is, where would your gauge be? What would your app tell you about your sense of expectation? your expectations of Jesus right now for yourself? What, a, what would it tell you about your level of expectations for Jesus for your relationships? Or your sense of expectation or level of expectation for what Jesus might do in the world? I wonder, does your gauge, like mine, fluctuate wildly depending on the circumstances or what's going on in the world around me. As followers of Jesus, listen, as followers of Jesus, we are meant to live with expectant faith. Where is our expectation? What do we actually expect of Jesus? We're to live with expectant faith that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. 
We're meant to live in expectant faith that God is the faithful God who keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. We're to live with expectant faith in neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we're meant to live in. It is the expectation that Jesus will show up in our lives. What do you expect of Jesus today? I wonder about our sense of expectation. Now, it may not have been expectation itself that raised Tabitha from the dead, but don't miss this. It was expectation that got Peter in the room. So am I saying that if you just expect good things to happen, they're going to happen? No. But if you have no level of expectation, the right people will not be in the room at the right time. If you don't live with expectation to just get Jesus in the room or get in the room with Jesus, then this story never happens. It never unfolds. So I want to say to you this morning, if you want the resurrection power of God to be poured out in your life, I don't mean you want to go to a good church that you just know that when you're able to go on Sundays that there's going to be a service there, it will be organized, and the music will be good, and the teaching will be good, and everything will be fine, and then you get to talk to some people and then go to lunch. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not even talking about getting up and reading your Bible a little bit during the week or going to a small group. No, I'm I'm talking about living with something that is just like a hunger within us, like an excitement, a level that of excitement that, that anticipates something is going to happen that hasn't yet happened. And something that's going to happen that maybe has never happened, or at least we've never experienced it in our own lives. So if you want the, the resurrection power of God to be poured out in your life, you must raise your level of expectation. Listen, guys, we as a church have to raise our level of expectation about what Jesus will do when he comes into the room. So how can we cultivate expectation? So expectation can be cultivated. That's a good thing. That's good news. We, we, we don't have to like sort of like muster it up or like go find expectation or, or read some big huge thing about expectation or whatever. It's not gonna like necessarily come upon you in the night. I mean, this is something that we can cultivate in our lives. In fact, I think the reason why we don't have the level of expectation that matches what Jesus wants to do in our lives and wants to do in our church is because we haven't cultivated our expectation. This is verse 40. I'm going to spend the whole rest of the time talking about this one verse. In fact, really mostly just the first part of the verse. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. Peter does three things worth mentioning here for those of us who want to cultivate a greater sense of expectation about what Jesus will do in our lives. And I I want to be cautious not to present this as some sort of formula to control the work of God in your life or to dictate to God what he should do when he shows up in the room. All I'm suggesting is expectation throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts and the the letters that follow, expectation is always a part of the move of God. Wherever we see the power of God being poured out, there was some measure of expectation in the room. 
So Peter does these three things worth mentioning. Peter, Peter himself, I think, must raise his level of expectation. But how much pressure is that? You're over in another town hanging out, like talking to some people and trying to heal someone of a fever, like putting a little cold compress on their forehead or whatever. And these people come because their friends died, and they expect you to do something about it. I think Peter's got to raise his level of expectation to match the level of expectation that the disciples had. And so, how does he do it? Well, I think his level of expectation is raised when he does three things. They're subtle things, but they're there. So, if you want to cultivate expectation in your life, number one, lower the volume. If you want to raise expectation in your life, lower the volume. This is the first part of, of verse 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. You remember the scene when Peter showed up? People are crying and they're showing him clothes and they're like, you know, somehow even celebrating. There's just a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff going on in the room. And the first thing that Peter does is to clear the room. More distraction equals less expectation. The more distraction we have in our lives, the less expectation we're going to carry with us. Because expectation is looking forward in hope that something will be added to our lives that we don't already have. That's what expectation is. It's anticipating or looking forward in hope that something will be added. And many of us are living lives that are so full, there's no room for anything to be added, and therefore we don't expect anything to be added. All of our expectation is already allocated to other things, other areas of our life or other people. Our lives are so full. They're so full. They're full of work, and they're full of hustle, and they're full of people, and they're full of concerns. Our lives are full of travel. Our lives are full of Netflix. Our lives are so full. We have cluttered our hearts, and all of our expectation is already assigned to other things. So if you want to see, like I do, I'm with you in this. If you want to see the power of the Holy Spirit poured out in your life, resurrection, life, and power, then you might want to think about clearing the room. I love how excited, that excited energy that was in the room is transformed into a, just this holy hush when Jesus is alone with the body. So to raise expectation in our lives, we need to lower the volume. A few years ago, Stephen Yantis, he's a psychologist at Johns Hopkins University, participated in some studies about our senses. And uh, part of the study was uh, looking at our ability to concentrate or to see when there's a higher level of volume around us. So this is just a little excerpt from, from what he's written, a, sum, a bit of the summary. Directing attention to listening effectively turns down the volume on input to the visual parts of the brain, meaning when I put in my AirPods, I actually am borrowing from my ability, my brain's ability to see or to recognize. The evidence we have right now strongly suggests that attention is strictly limited, a zero-sum game. When attention is deployed to one modality, say in this case talking on a cell phone, 
it necessarily extracts a cost on another modality, in this case, the visual task of driving. Meaning, we have to lower the volume if we want to see. Now that's true biologically, and it's definitely true spiritually. If we want to see, we have to lower the volume, we have to clear the room, because expectation is all about seeing. It's all about seeing what's possible. And if our lives are so loud and so cluttered, we literally cannot, we do not have the capacity to see what's possible. So how might you lower the volume one or two notches in your life this week? This is not an exhaustive list. These are 100% off the top of my head, but I wrote a couple of them down. Maybe don't go out every single night you have the opportunity to go out this week. It's really quiet in here because there are only three of you who actually want to go out this week. Okay, I'm going to say something now, and you're going to call for my resignation. Maybe don't travel every other weekend. Uh, here's another one. Maybe leave your AirPods at home this week. And you're like, well, I don't have AirPods. Okay, whatever. Whatever you use, <laughs> leave them at home this week. Begin to practice, just practically, turning down the volume in your life. And begin to see how you begin to see, and as you begin to see how your level of expectation begins to rise. Lower the clutter. Clear the room. Lower the volume. Number two, lean in. Lean in. So again, verse 40. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees. Now, what is Peter doing when he's kneeling down? Well, what Peter's actually doing, in a sense, is he's leaning in. I don't necessarily mean that that kneeling down is the same physical action as leaning in, but as Peter changes his physical posture, he's, spiritually ch he's changing his spiritual posture as well. As he kneels down, his spirit is leaning in to whatever it is that God has for him. Peter literally and physically changes his posture. And when his knees go down, or when he goes to his knees, then his expectations begin, begin to rise. Your, I think your posture really matters. I, I think your actual physical posture really matters. It's, it's all connected, right? We are whole human beings. I mean, our bodies are connected to our, our, our spirits, and our, and our spirits are connected to our mind. We're like a, a whole human being. We're not parsed out like separate parts operating autonomous from one another. Everything we do affects everything else in our lives. Now, we have a pretty chill congregation. Wouldn't you say so? See? Um, some of you just don't want to get the answer wrong. You know, we actually have a, like a pretty chill. Con what I mean is like when we come and gather for worship, like things are pretty chill. The loudest thing is like the greeting time, which you love doing that. But then after that, it's sort of like, okay, let's get serious again. And um, I'm always impressed that no matter what's happening up front, I'm always impressed that, impressed that many of us have the ability to just stand still. Like, it's a, it's a, I don't know how you do it. Jen is up here, like, calling down the reign of God and all of the angels in worship. And, and we're, we're singing, like, your love is alive. 
Your love is alive. Your love. Oh, my hands are out of my pocket. And if you think that's not happening, and Emily is my witness, I have photos from the back of the room from last week. And Jen is just, I mean, going for it. Praise God for Jen. And we are just, yes, thank you, Jen. And I just wonder sometimes, like, how hard are you actually having to work to stand still, to keep your hands in your pockets while Jen is calling down the angels around us? And some of you have objections to that. I was sharing some of this with Emily last week. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, I didn't grow up in a church like that. And other people didn't grow up in a church like that. And, I and maybe that's your objection, too. Well, that's just not the kind of church you grew up in. Um, or, or at least you didn't. You might say to me, you didn't grow up that way. And I would say, oh, yes, you did. You grew up this way. Maybe not in church, but in every other area of your life you grew up to expect things, and to move your body in alignment with your expectation. You know how to do it, you just think you're not supposed to do it here. So when you were a little boy, how many of you played Little League Baseball when you were a boy? I mean, you did, maybe you didn't have to, maybe you played one season. Raise your hand really high. Or a girl, little, little League Baseball, something like that. Yeah, a handful of you. This is why I don't tell sports sort of illustrations very often in this I'd love to only talk about sports. My team is currently fighting to win the Premier League today, right now. It is happening. It's in the second half. I'm, I've got to speed this sermon up. So I care about sports. I know five of you also care about sports. So you, you play Little League and you get up in the batter's box. You're not just going to stand there with like sort of like the bat by your side. No, the ball is coming. You expect a hard ball to be thrown at you by a little kid with spaghetti arms that has no control over where the ball is going to go. You have to be ready. And so what do you do to get ready? You get in a stance. You, get, you bend your knees and you hold the bat like the coach told you and you keep your shoulder back and you look over and you're waiting for the ball to come and you're probably even leaning a little bit on the balls of your feet because you have to be ready. See. Your body doesn't naturally step into the batter's box and ready itself. You have to make your body do that. And when you do that, your body signals then to your mind that something is coming. Expectation rises. You grew up that way. Okay, let me, for all you non-sports people, you're sitting at your desk and you're waiting to get that exam back, right? <laughs> and no, seriously, this is like it's between you and that kid that you went to school with since third grade for the highest GPA in your class, this probably actually applies to most of our church, and, you're, and you just, with anticipation, you're sitting at your desk, your palms are sweaty, you're leaning in, you can't wait to get the paper, right? We all do it. I, I, I love being at live events, particularly live sporting events, because when it's coming down to the wire and something is about to happen or you need something to happen, Especially if it's your, like, the, the home team, you're sitting in there, and the, the team is on the move. And this is why soccer is underrated, I think, as a, as a sport to watch. Um, I'm a convert, recent convert to soccer over the last eight years. And, um, but, but see, as, as like, everything is like coming down to this one moment, what do people in the stands do? No one, tells, no one puts a sign like a digital board, everyone stand up now because like, something might happen. No, we see the ball going down the field and the pass is being made and we see an opening and something might happen. And so you see the whole stadium stand. 
You're staying. We're changing our posture because we expect something to happen. And it either will happen or it won't happen, but we will have expected it to happen. So you did grow up this way. So no more excuses. Your posture matters. So in turn, your body signals to your heart that something's going to happen. Yesterday, Emily and I were, we had to travel over to the east side. We made it back safely. Don't worry, guys. We're here. <laughs> and so we're waiting on the train, and it's Saturday, and so there are, there are three MTA machines, and I, I've got to refill my Metro card. And there were people at all three, but not just people, like tour groups. <laughs> It's what it felt like. One had two people at it. That was the line I was in. I was like, surely this is going to go faster. Another had like a small family, and the other one had like extended family, aunts, uncles, and cousins. And, uh, and so I could see the trains coming in three minutes, and I'm thinking, surely this can go faster. And it just, I mean, it was terrible. I was waiting so expectantly. I was literally leaning forward on the balls of my feet, like kind of like looking in. I was uh, at one point swaying back and forth. I remember looking over at Emily. She was in another line hoping that would go faster. It didn't. I may have even grunted a few times. I'm not sure, but I think something actually noise was made. And, and it's, we, we all live in this space of like of anticipation in other areas of our lives. But I wonder like, what if you knew Jesus was three minutes away? I know that's cheesy a little bit to think about it like that. But what if literally we were gathered in here and we got a text and it was like, Jesus is gonna be here in three minutes. I don't know how that, I mean, I think it would change some things. But by his spirit, Jesus is here. We don't even have to wait three minutes. He's always here. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ himself has been poured out. Jesus is in the room. So let's remember that. We are talking about the king, and the king is in the room with us. So what if you're standing on the platform, and you look up at the digital sign on the board, and it just reads, Jesus, three minutes. Like, how might you anticipate the arrival of Christ. Listen, you don't have to raise your hands to really, truly worship. You don't. But what I'm here to say is if you long to have a greater level of expectation and to see the power of God poured out in your life, you might consider changing your posture. If you're like a, a pocket person, a worship pocket person, the WPP, I just made it up, if you're one of those then take your hands out of your pocket. It's a good step. If you're like, my hands are out of my pocket, and I might actually even like sway a little bit, but I definitely sit in the back, and I don't want people to see me. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. Maybe just sort of like putting your hands up here on your heart is a way of signaling, your body signaling an expectation that you're gonna be visited by the Holy Spirit today. Maybe it's raising, like we can raise our hands and it means nothing. This isn't about an, uh, uh, just this is like tricking ourselves. This is about alignment. Saying, I long to expect. Well, if you long to expect, you've got to bring your body into alignment with you. Sometimes you need to remind your body that you're in the presence of the king. So, what is Jesus doing in you? What is Jesus doing in your family? What is Jesus doing in your friends? What is Jesus doing at school or at work? Jesus is doing something. 
Let's expect it. And let's posture ourselves for it. Lean in to what he's doing. Change your posture. Number three, finally, raise your voice. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And this seems like the most obvious thing to do. Peter prayed. I find it interesting that Luke doesn't tell us at all what Peter prayed. We have no idea what Peter actually said. And I wonder if that's on purpose. I wonder if the articulation isn't as important as the act. In other words, I wonder if what we say is less important than actually saying, than actually just finding ourselves on our knees, being in God's presence and saying something, anything, Because if we were saying an incantation, let's say, if Peter had a spell and Peter were going to bring Tabitha back with a spell, an incantation, then the words and the order of those words would have really mattered. Luke would have recorded them. This isn't about incantation. See, the the Holy Spirit isn't about magic tricks. This This is something deep. If we're saying an incantation, the words matter, the order matters, but, but that's not what prayer is. Prayer isn't an incantation. It's not a, a series of words set in the right order to trigger, trigger this magical effect. Prayer is invitation. Peter clears the room, he kneels down, and he invites by the act of prayer. That's what prayer is. It's inviting. It's, to, to raise your voice in prayer is to invite the resurrection power of Jesus to be released by the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what prayer is. To raise your voice in prayer is to invite what is already true to be true in your life. Because what Peter, what Peter leans into is what's already true, that in Christ we are made alive. That's what he's leaning into. It's already true. And he's just inviting the Holy Spirit to make that true in that room. Here's some things that are true already. In Jesus, you were given grace before the world was created. This is 2 Corinthians 1.9. He gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In Jesus, you were chosen by God before creation. Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do we have a list of these in the back? In Jesus, you are loved by God with an inseparable love. We might not. You're going to have to take my word for it. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death, I read this earlier, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that's not all. In Christ Jesus, you were redeemed. You were forgiven for your sins. In Christ, Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Jesus, you are also justified before God, and you have been given God's righteousness in Jesus. This, means, this is from 1 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, he who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not all. In Christ Jesus, you become a new creation and a son or a daughter of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. 
prayer is inviting the Holy Spirit to make what is already true in the person of Jesus true in your life. Uh, Three or four years ago, I went to see my spiritual director here in the city. And I couldn't sort out why I was struggling. In fact, I often don't know even, I can't even identify. I just feel like things are sometimes not going well, and I was just trying to sort it all out. And I knew that the answers were way more complex than I could sort out uh, by myself. So I went and talked to Joe, my spiritual director. And after listening to me for several minutes, he asked me one question. You know what he asked me? How's your prayer life? I mean, I just poured out like a bunch of complicated stuff. And in, in the, the first split second after he asked me that, I thought, this guy is a loser. And then in the second, <laughs> in the second split second, I thought, oh my gosh, my prayer life's terrible. How's your prayer life? That's what he asked me. Without recognizing it, I think I'd probably slowly stopped raising my voice to Jesus. Maybe it was self-reliance, or maybe it was doubt. Maybe it was something else, but whatever the reason was, I didn't actually expect Jesus to show up in my life anymore. How's your prayer life? To raise my level of expectation, I had to get back to the simplest thing. I had to pray again. And I know that prayer might not feel simple, for many of us in this room. So I'm going to give you a simple way to pray today. So let's call it the first five. This is not original to me. I picked this up somewhere along the way. But the idea is like pretty basic. It's pretty simple. The idea is what if you and I, as an exercise in expectation, what if we spent the first five minutes of our day in prayer every day for the rest of this month? What if we took just the first five minutes of our day, said, I'm going to pray for those five minutes. So let me give you sort of a strategy for it. Number one, lower the volume. So meaning no phone. Don't check your phone first. That's your alarm, fine. Turn it off. Get out of there. Uh, No Twitter feed. No checking what's trending or like the news feed or any of that. Uh, No calendar. So turn the volume down. You get the picture? Don't jump into the clutter. Uh, The second thing is like change your posture. Maybe actually get on your knees. If your roommate thinks you're crazy or maybe they think you lost something, I don't know, or like you're just like sweeping up or whatever, whatever. Just like get on your knees, change your posture. Let your body tell your mind and spirit to expect something. And then raise your voice. So how do you actually do that? How do we actually pray. Some of, some, we have some black belts in prayer in this room telling you. Like they've put the time in, they've like progressed through like the, the prayer ranks. You know, these, they know how to pray. And so if you know someone in this church that just like knows how to pray because they've cultivated a life of prayer, ask them. Take them to coffee or to tea or whatever and say, would you just tell me how you pray? Right? But for some of us, If we don't make our coffee or tea first, the first five minutes of our day will just simply be the last five minutes of sleep uh, for that particular day. So if you have to make coffee, do whatever, fine, that's great. So when you find yourself there by yourself, you've got your cup of coffee or tea, 
and you begin to spend your five minutes in prayer. So if you're a person that struggles with prayer and you're like, I don't know who's black belt, and no one's wearing a belt, I can't find anybody with a belt on in this church, then let me give you this sort of simple thing. And I, I'm, there are lots of ways that you can go about this, but if you struggle with prayer, I want to encourage you to pray what Anne Lamott calls three essentials to prayer. Sorry, three essential prayers. Here are three prayers to pray. It's easy to remember. Help, thanks, and wow. Help, thanks, and wow. These are three essential prayers to pray. How do we pray help? The help prayer. Jesus, help me. That's a, that's a good beginning. Yes, Jesus. Oni gets so excited when we start talking about prayer. She's a black belt in prayer. She's one of the people you want to see. You can find her. She'll be dropping her water bottle all over the place. Jesus, help me. I need your help. I mean, how do you ask for help? That's what we do. Jesus, help. I need your help. Jesus, help me face today. Today's going to be a tough day. Jesus, help me live from who you say I am today. Jesus, help me. With whatever it is, Jesus, help. Second prayer, thanks. Jesus, thanks. Thank you that you're with me right now. Thank you that you hear me. Jesus, thank you that help is on the way. Jesus, thank you that, again, you're here with me. Thank you for the life that is mine and yours. Thank you that I get to live in this crazy city that I live in. Thank you for the one or two people you put in my life that I feel like I can count on. Jesus, thank you for the one or two people that you're sending in my life because I don't feel like I have anyone that I can count on. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, wow. Third prayer, wow. Wow, I woke up. Look at the, suns, the sunrise this morning. Wow. What a beautiful sunrise. Wow, you have blessed me so much. Wow, you call me your own. Wow, you love me. You know me. And you love me. Help, thanks, and wow. Church, we cannot claim or proclaim his resurrection until we believe in his power to move and to heal and to raise the dead. That's the truth. The gathered church, what we do here on Sunday morning, this isn't a sideshow. This is where we are filled with expectation that even our dead will be raised. Where those who have been healed in this community, those who have been raised in this community, those who have been set free in this community, it's where they share their stories of faith. And then that grows our collective expectation and our individual expectation. This church is the place when we gather together where the resurrection power of Jesus is on full display and where we bear witness to the world just outside these walls that Jesus is three minutes away. So what if we learn together how to lower the volume, how to lean in, and how to raise our voice? So my prayer for you today is that God would grow you in your expectation of what Jesus will do in your life when he shows up in the room. Let's pray. Prayer is invitation. 
And the simplest prayer of invitation I know to pray is come Holy Spirit. So come Holy Spirit. We invite you into this room. We know that you are already here and in many ways you are the one who has invited us. So would you make true in our lives what is already true in this room? Would you make true in our lives today what is already true in the person of Jesus Christ? We are loved, we are accepted, we are healed. Father, do that to us and in us right now as we pray and as we confess you as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.